Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello once more and welcome back to another episode of Signals to Danger, the first of 2022 This is a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK, explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out, and how each of these accidents shaped the industry going forwards. Now, sometimes the content that we discuss is distressing, and the subject that we cover, well, that means that loss of life and injury are a feature of most of our episodes. My name is Dan, I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life, but today I'll be the one taking you through this podcast. Since last time we spoke, I'd like to take the opportunity to thank Dan, Zach, Julie, Gordon, Mark and Daniel for your Patreon pledges and for choosing to support the podcast in that way. And if you'd like to find out how to do this, please head over to signalstodanger.com and click on the support page. To those live stream tier supporters, hello there. And to all the other Patreon supporters, I hope you're enjoying watching the video of today's recording session. Right, if you want to get yourself on social media in the coming days, have a look on there for a little announcement about some collaboration that I've done in the last week or so. I am waiting for the person I've collaborated with to announce it before I say so properly, but I'm going to pop that up on Twitter, most likely somewhere in the coming week. And I'd love you to come and join and enjoy that collaboration um, too. Bit of a longer intro, a minute or so, so I think now we'll uh, we'll just move into the usual and get started with episode 5 of season 2. Carriages concertinaed across a mainline railway junction. Two express trains, once headed in opposite directions, now they're piled together in the Staffordshire countryside. The year is 1986, and the place is Colwich Junction. Carriages are crushed Investigators at the scene search through the wreckage for the injured. A point's failure. 
Moving into today's episode marks a return to normality following the festive season. The mince pies have uh, been put away or going out of date. Resolutions have been made and some have been broken and the work clothes have been ironed once more. So what better way to get back to normal than by revisiting one of our regular stomping grounds? To take a lead from our previous episodes, what do Whedon, Nuneaton, Quintus Hill and Harrow and Wheelston all have in common? The WCML, the West Coast Main Line. We've been here before and I'm fairly confident we'll be here again in the future, but today we're going to focus on one specific date in its history, the 19th of September 1986. As we've discussed in previous outings, the WCML is named thusly due to the fact it generally follows the west coast of the UK up from London in the southeast, over to the western side of the country and up through the Scottish cities of Edinburgh and Glasgow. The line has a lot in common with its eastern cousin, the ECML. They both connect the English and Scottish capitals, they're both the definition of arterial routes, home to well, long-distance passenger trains, intermodal freight and regional services, and they both run up and down the respective sides of the nation. There are, however, a few areas where the two differ. The terrain negotiated by the eastern line is somewhat tamer, considerably flatter, which allows for a line with high speeds of up to 125 mile an hour, and a reasonably direct route dictated more by the towns and cities it wanted to serve along the route, so Peterborough, Doncaster, York, Newcastle, to name just a few of them. In this respect, the West Coast Main Line differs somewhat. The terrain is not as forgiving on this route to Scotland. While the line still has 125 mile an hour sections, some of the mountainous and undulating terrain on this side of the country means that tilting trains are required to help negotiate the tightest corners. I certainly have my own opinions about which of the two routes is more picturesque. Nothing really can beat the journey through the Loon Gorge and the Cumbrian foothills, but I won't let your... Uh, your judgment be coloured by mine. There is one other difference with the two routes that plays more of a role in today's episode. The ECML is much more a very straightforward route. The line starts at King's Cross and then travels from station to station to station along one single ribbon of track all the way up to Edinburgh. The West Coast Main Line, well, that's a lot less linear. North of Milton Keynes, there is a point where the line divides, with two tracks continuing north and two looping off to serve Northampton, rejoining just before Rugby. Now after Rugby, more of the same antics ensue as the line splits again, western branch serving Coventry and Birmingham and the east Nuneaton. And again after this there are a few more points where the two branches cross over to each other before they eventually serve Crewe and Stoke respectively. Finally, both sides send traffic off towards Manchester through a mesh of junctions and branching lines and north of Crewe another branch terminates in Liverpool. Finally, after all this falafel, um, the line continues north through Cumbria and into Scotland in a much more linear, normal sort of mainline way. But it is plain to see how one would need to pay attention and make sure that the well, the West Coast service that you're taking is taking you by the route you think it is, especially if you want one of those intermediate stations. Around the Midlands, the WCML is probably more like the WCMW, the West Coast Mainline Web. All of these branches and stretches of the WCML necessitate a number of junctions to allow trains to move around the line's varying routes. So, for those who are familiar with the network, some of these names might be familiar. Weaver Junction, Stone Junction, Rugby Trent Valley, Colwich. 
Colwich Junction is one of those points where trains can pass between the different paths of the West Coast Main Line. It allows trains leaving northbound from the Nuneaton branch to head in one of two directions, straight on towards Crewe or crossing over the junction on diverging lines to the right towards Stoke and Manchester. On the approach to the junction, there are four tracks. That's heading northbound. Left to right is the down fast and the down slow. Those are the ones heading northbound. And then the up fast and the up slow heading southbound. As the tracks head through the junction, the up line, the up fast heads off towards crew and the up slow heads off towards stoke. This means that the down slow and the up fast lines cross in a diamond in the middle of the junction. The down fast has a clean run north with no crossing and the down slow enjoys the same freedom. It is a little bit of a difficult one to try and picture just through me describing it on a podcast. So this is one of those times I will genuinely say, look, go and Google a picture of the of the crossing, Google the junction, see how it's laid out and it might make a little bit more sense. It's a hard one to try and in a purely audio medium describe. Nowadays, the junction is controlled by Stoke Signalling Centre, but back in 1986, the junction was tended to by Colwich Signal Box, located adjacent to the junction itself. A perfectly normal piece of infrastructure, just one component in a 400-mile long route, which saw hundreds of trains a day pass without incident. Not a luxury the line would always bestow upon its users. If you want to spot a train on the West Coast Main Line, there are a few staple fleets running up and down. The variety of diesel multiple units from different operators, Northern, Transpennine Express, Transport for Wales, ScotRail, all doing their regional services in the section of the line that they serve. Additionally, both West Midlands trains and Southern operate electric multiple units on their sections of the line, and West Midlands trains go as far north as Liverpool from the capital. There are some services, though, that run the entire length of this route. Not just regional services, but intercity services in the truest form of the word. For many years, this intercity franchise was operated by one of the most recognisable brands in rail. Love him or love him, Mr. Branson's Iron Road Endeavour of Virgin Trains. Well, that underpinned services on the West Coast, going from the heart of the capital to Scotland's southern cities. These intercity services required trains capable of making the long journey as quickly as possible and so the workhorse of the West Coast, the Class 390, was born. An electric multiple unit that started out with far less carriages than it has now, with them either being 9 or 11 cars long, but I think they believe they started out at 7. It's capable of travelling up to 125 mile an hour, and they run the majority of those whole route express trains. Although, nowadays, it's under the banner of Avanti West Coast, since first group was successful in the last franchise change. The 390, however, is known by a better name, one that's earned by its ability to tilt into corners and take those winding lines at the higher speed, the Pendolino. 
And while the Pendolino has been the defining fleet of the West Coast Main Line for around about two decades, before that point, there was probably another fleet that had that title. In 1965, British Rail introduced the Class 86 electric locomotives into service. These were 81 tons electric-powered workhorses, capable of turning their 4,000 horsepower into 110 mile an hour trains up and down the West Coast Main Line, depending on which variant it was. I'm, I have a soft spot for these. For the record, I'm not one of those pick your favourite train kinds of guy, but I do like Class 86. And I've definitely just sold myself off as a train spotter to some people who are listening to this. The Locos started their lives as being slightly problematic, gaining a bit of a reputation for damaging the tracks as they ran. This was the result of the fact that the traction motors, which are very heavy bits of kit, probably one of the most heavy things on an electric loco, were hung from the axles of the wheels and not from the bogey or from the body itself. Weight which isn't separated from the tracks by suspension components is known as unsprung mass, and it can really cause issue as the direct weight of the components is dealt to the tracks without any dampening, so rocks and bumps and track joints and everything like that, it's all much greater force without any intervention straight to the track. In any case, modifications were soon made to the fleet to try and mitigate for those damages it was causing, and that included the addition of a large flexi-coil springs to the outside of the bogies. This very prominent and visual addition earned the locomotives a nickname in some circles of Zebedee. If you know, you know. And if you don't, have you ever seen the Magic Roundabout? In any case, the Class 86 were very used for very heavy mixed-use traffic, so there were significantly altered variants that catered for express passenger trains and others that catered for freight services up and down the electrified West Coast Main Line. A hundred of the class were eventually created for the role, and they were eventually joined by the very similar Class 87s when more of the line was electrified. Together, they kept up their passenger hauling role until the early 2000s, and as far as freight is concerned, until very recently you could see the odd Class 86 in Freightliner colours knocking about. Now we know all of that, it's time to revisit the 19th of September, 1986. Just before lunchtime, driver Shaw booked onto duty at Manchester Piccadilly Station. He went through the usual processes required and then made his way out onto the platforms. Just after 12, he hoisted himself into the cab of a locomotive, and at quarter past, he started a journey southbound. Without any incident or issue, he worked this train forward to Birmingham's New Street Station, where he alighted before hopping onto another train as a passenger, taking him down through the Midlands to Euston Station in London. All of this seems like a lot of travelling up and down the country, but it's very routine for those who work these intercity trains. Depots cover a vast area in terms of the route knowledge that they need to have. Shaw celebrated his entirely uneventful arrival in the capital by eating a couple of sandwiches and making a mug of tea disappear before he walked out again to a train. This time it was the 1700 service from Euston all the way back up to Manchester Piccadilly. On arrival at Platform 15, he met the guard near the locomotive, number 86429, 
who informed him they had 13 coaches on the train and a total weight of 444 tonnes. Between themselves, they arranged to carry out a brake test and began to prep themselves for departure. As a matter of interest, 86429 was also a named locomotive, and a lot of the 86s were. This one was called The Times, after the eponymous daily British newspaper. Just prior to leaving Euston, a young man knocked on the cab door and asked if he could ride with Shaw as far as Stoke-on-Trent. Shaw, under the impression that this was a driver who was learning the road, well, he allowed him into the cab. Route learning is a really important part of training for new drivers. It's sitting in the cab with another driver and watching the the road, the route, pass you by and recognising where features are instead of just trying to spot them on a map um, and all of a sudden understanding what that looks like and translates into on the actual railway. So it was acceptable for a trainee driver to jump in with a normal driver, a trained, qualified driver, and it was probably fine for sure to allow this young man into the cab because that's the role he was in. He was a trainee driver. However, Mr. Organ was a driver in training from Brighton on the southern region of British Railways and didn't actually have authority to travel in cabs on the Midland region, which was where we were today. He had wanted to join Shaw to study electric traction and some factors of signalling on the route. But he wasn't supposed to be in the cab. He didn't have the right, the pass, to, to, to ride in a cab on the Midland region. So legitimately or not, the Manchester Express ended up departing with both men present in the cab and enjoyed a relatively uneventful journey as it headed north. Two permanent speed restrictions were observed properly and the train was unchecked by signals as could be reasonably expected for an on-time express. And with nothing spoiling, the train quickly got closer and closer to the village of Colwich in Staffordshire. Around 20 minutes after that, another express departed from Liverpool Lime Street, headed south towards Euston. At the head of this train was number 86211, another named locomotive, the City of Milton Keynes. Following behind it were 12 coaches, and at the controls was driver Warner. All was in order on the journey up until crew, where Warner alighted and handed over control of the train to Eric Good. The guard of the train, Mr. Mason, well, he spoke briefly with Good on the platform at Crewe to make himself known and the conversation was pleasant enough with Good seeming in good health. With everything okay, the train departed and set off towards London again. In its path, the same village of Colwich, 30 miles away. P.T. Millward was a signaller at the time, stationed at Colwich Junction Box on the evening of the 19th. He was undertaking his duties as he always did when he received notification of a train approaching his area. Well, actually, he received two within three minutes of each other. At 20 past six, he was informed that the Euston to Manchester train was on the approach, and three minutes later that the Liverpool to Euston was on the move towards him as well. Millward had a decision to make. Which train would take priority? The Manchester-bound train would need to cross over the junction and the path of the Liverpool, so one of them would need to be slowed or stopped for the other train. That Liverpool train, well, that was proceeding straight over the junction um, on the fast line and that would be able to do so at 
line speeds, about 100 mile an hour, it was currently on time and it would be a shame to slow it down, especially when you consider that the Manchester train was by now running a couple of minutes behind and, well, that would actually need to slow to a restricted speed to negotiate the, the Diamond Junction and the crossing over towards Stoke and Manchester. And that was the decision. One Hotel 20, the train to Manchester, was routed from the fast line onto the slow line and the signals were set in a way that should have brought the train to a halt just before the slow line turned out and over the diamond crossing with the up fast. At the same time, Millwood set the route for the Liverpool train, 1 Alpha 76, to have a clear run through the junction, intending that it would pass by his box at about 100 miles an hour to the south. And after that happened, then then he would clear the route for one Hotel Zoo Zero. Signal Charlie Hotel T3, around 100 yards away from the box, is the signal which was now displaying a red danger light, telling Shaw to bring his train to a stand before the junction. Brief interlude here, because I haven't done this for a little while, just jumped out the story for a quick tangent. When we're referring to signals and other structures, such as overhead line stanchions on the railway, they have these alphanumeric designations, and we say that in a really specific way. To avoid clarity, no, to, to ensure clarity and to avoid confusion. So you could look at CH23 and say that should be referred to as CH23. But if that's misunderstood, it could cause all sorts of issues. If you're using a signal or another structure to say where you are, especially in an emergency, you need to make sure that the person at the other end of that radio or that phone knows exactly where you mean. So we use the phonetic alphabet. We'd say Charlie Hotel. 23, except we wouldn't say 23 because we use individual numbers as well. Just everything we can do to make sure that that is as, as crystal clear as possible is done. There's a, a, a thing we call with these safety critical communications that we, we work on the ABC principle. It is accurate, brief, and clear. So it has to be right. Don't say more than you need to because it muddies the water and make sure what you're saying is clear and understood. So, in a call to the signaller, CH23 should always be Charlie Hotel 23, and so on and so forth. But I have digressed, so I'll drag myself back to the storyline again. At this point, Millwood was aware of one Hotel 20 approaching. See it heading northbound, slowly heading towards Hotel Charlie Hotel 23, at between 20 to 30 miles an hour. Millwood thought nothing unusual at this point, but that all suddenly changed. He watched as one Hotel 20 passed the signal. It was still slowing, but now it was headed towards the Diamond Crossover. Millwood's blood would have run cold as he turned his attention towards another train on the move in the area. He'd been joined in the box that day by a signalling technician by the name of Morgan. Morgan had had his attention drawn when Millwood had suddenly exclaimed, "'Where's he going?' He watched the Manchester-bound train, slow and slow, gradually getting slower, while the Liverpool train was bearing down on the junction at 100 miles an hour. Morgan estimated that the Manchester locomotive had slowed to about 3 miles an hour by the time it drew out onto the Diamond Crossing. And that is when the collision took place. Melwood believed that he saw the leading end of the southbound train collide with the rear cab of the Manchester and Morgan added that the loco then seemed to fly over the top of its northbound cousin, followed by a carriage. Both men's vision was then obscured as the area became covered in a vast cloud of dust. 
Loud, deep bangs and thuds were heard, and the whole junction was illuminated in a series of blue flashes as the overhead wires collapsed on the scene. The men ensured that the area was protected, and then they contacted the emergency services. There was no ambiguity as to whether or not something terrible had taken place. They'd been treated to a front row seat. In that cloud of dust, a violent collision between the trains had taken place, scattering the carriages across the entirety of the junction. Both locomotives had been flown well clear of the lines they'd actually been travelling on and were extensively damaged, completely beyond repair in both cases. Joining them on the route to the scrap heap were the leading five carriages of the Liverpool train and the first two vehicles of the Manchester. Some of the vehicles were even cut up on site due to their condition. They couldn't even be craned off the, the line. The leading two carriages of the Liverpool train had actually been thrown about 65 and 100 yards further south over the concertina wreckage of the next three carriages, which lay side by side up against the crumpled wreckage of the Times, the local from the Manchester train. With such force and violence in this accident, the speed of the Liverpool train, those who had arrived to aid the passengers were no doubt fearing the absolute worst. 500 passengers had been aboard the Liverpool train at the time of the accident and a further 373 on the Manchester-bound service heading north. 75 was the number that they found. But it wasn't the number of lives lost. This was the injured. 32 of them were seriously injured enough to spend a night in hospital and then a number of them spent considerably longer but not one passenger, by some miracle, was killed in the accident. Although I say some miracle, and the miracle was probably the strength of the carriages. Those marshalled on the train were a mixture of BR's Mark 1, 2 and 3 vehicles, with the leading two passenger vehicles of the Liverpool train being of the newest variant, the Mark 3. We talk about developing vehicles with much greater crashworthiness, and I think Corwich Junction is one of those Situations where we can look and say, it was working. Had the vehicle been constructed of entirely Mark 1s and some of those less structurally sound vehicles been right at the head of the train, we would probably have been looking at some considerable passenger fatalities. It was not, however, all good news. While rescuers were arriving, Mason, the guard of the Liverpool train, was passed a request by the chief fire officer on scene. Could he accompany them to the locomotive? 86211, the city of Milton Keynes, was now laid alongside the track, considerably damaged. The cabs at both ends were damaged and crushed and almost destroyed, back as far as the bulkhead. The bogies had been stripped of the loco and there was other damage to the bodywork in the roof. The fire brigade asked Mason if he could confirm which cab that Eric Good had been driving the train from, and he told them. And at that point, the fire brigade used a scanner to check what remained of the cab. They confirmed that there was a body within the wreckage. Mason became incredibly upset at this point and needed to be relieved of duty, but I do not think anybody could blame him. Eric Good was the sole fatality of the disaster at Colwich Junction. Suddenly faced with a train in front of him at 100 miles an hour, he would have had little chance to do anything other than apply the brakes and wait for the impact. 
a terrifying experience to consider as we look back and try to imagine the events of an evening so many years ago. With the rescue work at Corwich complete, attention turned to other matters. Recovery work and investigations began. To start with, collapsed overhead wires were removed and buffers which had locked onto each other resolved. And by midnight of the 20th, the rearmost eight carriages of the Manchester train, relatively uninvolved in the accident, were removed by rail. A railway breakdown crane and two hiding road cranes began lifting wreckage the next morning and by midnight, all of the vehicles at the crash site had been removed. Despite delays that were caused when the engineers found that the Liverpool train's buffet car contained asbestos. At the same time as recovery work is undertaken, investigators also start their work. They attend site and record the position of vehicles, markings on the track, damaged equipment, other pieces of physical evidence which needed to be assessed in situ. They attended Corbett's Junction on the 20th to carry out this work. One such factor that they would look at normally would be to examine the position of control equipment in the cabs of the locos involved in the crash, and although both locos were carefully examined, while they were so seriously damaged that it was extremely difficult to give definitive evidence regarding where the brake equipment was set to and various controls in the cabs. Repairs to the track, signalling and the overhead line equipment continued throughout the weekend, with the switch diamonds, which were completely destroyed in the collision, being temporarily replaced by plain line on the up main line. The overhead line equipment was re-energised on the 23rd, and the lines, with the exception of that route across to the Stoke line, was reopened to normal traffic at 8.15 that evening, under a temporary speed restriction of 50 miles an hour, and a few Days later on, on the 6th of October, the route to Stoke was reopened after replacement of the points and switches. While this might seem like a bit of a quick turnaround, especially looking at some of the things that have happened more recently, it's really important to remember that that route is of a real great significance to the nation. So there are, with the web of the West Coast Main Line, there are alternative ways of getting around that, but it was very important to get it opened as quickly as possible. The show must go on, but the investigation certainly continued. I'm sure that it will come as no surprise to you that investigators had a very keen interest in understanding why the trains came together, and specifically what each train saw in terms of signalling. We already know that Millward, on duty in the signal box, had set the route through the junction for the Liverpool train and then brought the Manchester train to a stand, or at least intended to do so, 
at Charlie Hotel 23, protecting the junction. The positions of all the controls in the signal box were checked following the accident, and they tallied with this version of events. Millward had pulled his levers as he stated, so the next step was to check whether or not the signals themselves and the position of the points correlated with that version of events. Unsurprisingly, they did. So the next step after that would be to understand whether they were showing the aspects they were supposed to at the time of the accident itself, and not just shortly afterwards when they were examined. One way of doing this is by looking at the actual equipment that's in the cabs. Specifically, both of the locomotives involved in the collision at Colwich were fitted with the automated warning system. The automatic warning system, sorry. We've covered it in episodes before, but normally as an explanation of a feature which would have prevented an accident. Here, we're going to look at it as how it can evidence what happened in an accident. AWS, very brief version, is the system which sounds an audible alarm in the cab of a train on the approach to a signal, which is anything but a green proceed. If it's not an alarm, then it's a bell. If a driver doesn't acknowledge the warning, the brakes are put into emergency, and it's essentially a great safeguard against a lack of concentration or situational awareness. But one way we can use AWS following an accident is because it doesn't just give the audible warning, it has a visible warning in the cab as well whether it's a yellow or a red signal. This is in the form of a display in the cab known as the sunflower. If the last signal the train passed was green, this display will just show as a black disc. But if it was a yellow, double yellow or red, well, that display will now show this fan of two-tone yellow, two-tone yellow rays radiating out from the centre. Easy to see why it's called the sunflower. And if you want to know what that looks like, have a look online as well. As I said earlier though, the cabs of both of these trains were very, very heavily damaged and investigators were unable to say with certainty whether any of the controls or displays had been altered by the forces involved in the crash. But what they did find helped to tell the story. When investigators were able to pick apart the cabs of the trains, they found that in the lead cab of the Liverpool, the AWS indicator showed as all black, completely in line with what you would have seen if you'd passed a proceed aspect on the approach to the junction. And the indicator in the rear cab showed the same, although the one in the rear cab was no longer in the rear cab, it had been ejected from it by the force of the crash. When investigators examined the wreckage of the Times, they found that it showed the AWS isolating handle to be sealed in the working condition, working position, the AWS aspect was black and yellow. From the rear cab, which was extremely damaged, the sunflower also showed the black and yellow display. Mr. Alcroft, who was a traction inspector assisting in the investigation, conferred with the investigators about what those displays meant. He agreed that the AWS aspects of the Liverpool locomotive clearly indicated that it last passed a signal at green, while the Manchester loco had passed over the ramp of a signal at a restrictive aspect, giving a warning which the driver must have cancelled. He agreed that very severe jolts from the collision could have altered the indications of any of the displays, but they'd been able to ascertain, despite all the damage that the indicators in the rear cabs showed the same aspects. They both would have worked, even though it was being driven from the front cab, the AWS indication in the rear cab would have still reacted. So it was really unlikely, they thought, that both cabs could be altered to be incorrect in the same way. All the physical evidence then pointed to the fact that the Liverpool train, under the command of Driver Good, had done everything right. Approached the junction under green signals, at line speed, 
and being confronted with the terrifying situation of a train sat there in his path. A situation created by the fact that the other train had passed a signal at danger and stopped in the way. The next step in an investigation like this, well, that would be to take the evidence of the drivers involved. However, quite often they don't survive collisions of this size and scale to give their accounts. We we know that Eric Good would not be able to defend his corner, but at this point he was all but excused from any suspicion of error. We do, however, have two other people who we can ask about the accident, Shaw and Organ. While Good lost his life in the accident, they survived after making an escape, well, fit for the script of an action movie. To tell their story, we need to revisit the accident and what happened, but from inside the cab of the Times. Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. In order to take the train from the downfast lines of the west coast across to the lines towards Stoke, Colwick's Junction needed to be crossed. In order to do this, Shaw would need to bring his train from the downfast onto a crossover which would set him onto the downslow. As the four tracks split to two in each direction, it was the slow lines which changed into the line to Stoke. I'm going to give you a very brief version of what happened in the cab first, but we really will need to go through it in a little bit more detail afterwards to understand how it happened but I'm finding it a difficult one to write, not just in terms of making it a block of technical stuff without telling any story as part of it. So this is the way I'll do it. On the day in question, this transition from the fast to the slow lines went perfectly, slowing as required from 100 miles an hour to make the crossover safely, and then heading towards the junction at 40 miles an hour. The train slowed down on the approach to Charlie Hotel 23, which was showing a red signal. The key part to realise here, and we will explain further shortly, is that Shaw, rightly or wrongly, spoiler alert, it was wrongly, expected this signal to clear as he approached it to green or yellow, to a less restrictive aspect. He expected it to step up to a less restrictive aspect. It didn't. As Shaw closely approached Charlie Hotel 23, he realised with this sense of horror that it was remaining at red, and made an emergency brake application believing that he would stop at the signal. 
He then passed the signal at danger, constantly reducing speed and saw an intercity express approaching the junction at speed on the main line towards him. He still hoped at this point, no doubt with everything taking place in slow motion, that his train would stop short of the diamond crossing, that this would be nothing but a very near miss. But it became clear when they were still travelling about three to four miles an hour that an accident was inevitable. At that point, he suggested to Organ that their best option now might well be to, well, to put it bluntly, to bail out. Organ hurried over and opened the door on the driver's side of the train behind the partition, the left side is in the direction of travel, and jumped out down towards the down main line. He later said that due to the fact he landed on his feet and had no grazes to his hands or anything like that, he considered that the train could not have been travelling at more than a walking pace. As he jumped, he was aware that the locomotive of the Liverpool train was upon them. As Shaw reached the door of the cab, the front of the Times fouled the crossing. At almost the moment he jumped from the locomotive, the city of Milton Keynes collided with the Times at about 100 miles an hour. It was a tremendous crash, and both men were showered with debris and broken glass. Though they were so close to this violent collision, both survived as these trains crashed around them. You would probably question the realism of it if you saw it in a film. Though their survival without serious injury is somewhat improbable, it did give investigators the opportunity to speak to both men about what happened. To understand what went wrong on the day and their accounts, we need to understand two aspects of signalling, pun intended, approach control and diverging route aspects. The first of these, approach control, works like this. At certain locations, such as the last signal on the approach to a terminus station, or at a diverging route, a junction off the main line, which requires a large reduction in speed, approach control signalling, or approach release, might be used. The driver will be checked down with a normal signalling sequence, sort of slowed down with a green, turning into a double yellow, a single yellow, and that would be in a four-aspect area. That slows the train down, because they will see a red at the next signal. But the interesting bit is what happens at that red. The danger signal will clear when it's proven that the approaching train must have slowed to an appropriate speed for the conditions ahead, so for that turnout or for that entry to a platform. An example of this would be a, a low-speed junction. So especially when the speed needs to be dropped to traverse the points to a speed that's much lower than the main line, so say a 25-mile-an-hour crossover on a 90-mile-an-hour line, the train will be brought down to almost standing at the signal before it clears. And that approach control is maintained, um, achieved by maintaining the signal at danger until the track circuit in front of the signal has been occupied for a specific period of time. After it's been occupied for that period of time, the signal is allowed to step up to the highest available access, um, aspect and display the junction indicator where applicable. So you'd have this red signal that would be red, red, red until it knew you'd been in the section for long enough that you must have slowed down to the speed you need to be going at. And then the signal will become green or yellow, depending on what the actual signaling conditions are beyond it. The length of time required for that to happen varies on the design of the installation and the conditions where it's installed. So I think we understand that. And it's one of the key factors in the accident at Colwich. Shaw was adamant in his belief that the red signal he observed at Charlie Hotel 23 was a signal that was 
was exhibiting approach release. Shaw said that on emerging from a bridge under uh, from under a bridge a hundred yards before the crossover, he was surprised to see Charlie Hotel Two Three displaying a red aspect. He braked as he was approaching it, but he still expected that signal to clear to a less restrictive aspect as he approached it. About the point when his train was 50, 40 yards away from it, Shaw decided at that point that it was not going to clear. And that is the point that he applied the brakes in emergency. We all know what happened next. And I suppose the next question is why? Why did he believe that? Which leads us into the next of the two signal ideas, diverging route aspects. The West Coast Main Line is a, a high-speed line. This means that the signalling is set up to provide the lead times needed to allow for that high-speed operation. And I briefly mentioned it a second ago, for that we use four-aspect colour signalling. On the way to a stop signal, the driver will see first a green, 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 when it's all clear and good to go. Then a double yellow, preliminary caution. This warns the driver that the next signal ahead is at a yellow for caution. The single yellow warns that the driver, the next signal, is at red Red for danger, red for stop. Four separate aspects which tell a driver what the next bit of the line looks like in terms of signalling. There are other ways that we can use signalling to slow trains down. We've just learnt one, approach control. Now how about when we want to slow a 100 mile an hour train down for a 50 mile an hour junction? Approach control is great, but that means that you're actually probably slowing the train down too much nearly come to a stand of 20, 30 mile an hour, depending on how you set up your approach control. But it doesn't mean that they're taking the junctions at the speeds that they are designed for. So say a crossover between a fast and a slow line might be built to be able to be taken at 50, but approach control will see it much slower. So we can use something else to slow a train down to the right speed for this sort of situation. Diverging route up indications. In 1978, a briefing document was issued to drivers, guards and signalmen. It was entitled, Signalling at Junctions, New Flashing Aspects. The document explained that the normal practice in colour light signal territory when a train is signalled to a diverging route through a speed-restricted turnout is to delay the clearance of the junction signal until the train has passed the next signal in rear. At some locations where the normal method would be too restrictive to enable trains to take advantage of the permitted speed through the junction, the arrangement is modified to permit the junction signal to display a proceed aspect as soon as the route is set and the line ahead is clear. Although the latter arrangement has been satisfactory for conventional trains, it does not entirely meet the needs of the new high-speed trains. To match a higher performance of the high-speed trains, it is necessary to provide a system of signalling at junctions which will give drivers an advance warning of the diversion and so enable them to take full advantage of the permitted speed through the junction while still ensuring that the train will not be travelling at too high a speed on reaching the junction to negotiate the points safely. And I started doing that in that voice and then realised how long the paragraph actually was. And it is a bit wordy, but it covers what we already know. Approach control works, but it was too restrictive. The document court went on to continue BR to explain BR's solution to the problem. To meet these circumstances, some change in the present signalling practice is necessary. In the future, where circumstances require, two new signalling aspects will be used to give a positive advance indication to drivers that junction-facing points are set for a diverging route over which the speed 
must be reduced. These two new signal aspects will be the flashing double yellow and the flashing yellow respectively. In such case, the sequence of aspects approaching the junction will be double flashing double yellow, flashing yellow, and a steady yellow with a junction indicator. The junction indicator is something we've actually talked about in the past. We call it, sometimes some people call it, the feather, but it's a board on the top of a signal with five lights in a line, and this light indicates that the route has been set to diverge in that direction from the main line. There's theoretically a number of positions it can be so you can have a signal that would denote one or two routes being set so you'd have more than one of these junction indicators on the top but anyway i've digressed slightly again within the setup for diverging routes outlined in 1978 there was the following paragraph drivers must understand that the single flashing yellow aspect combines the function of the steady double yellow aspect in a normal aspect sequence and in consequence, until the junction signal changes to a less restrictive aspect, drivers must be prepared to stop at the next signal beyond the junction. The key part in this understanding is that last line, beyond the junction. If a train was given a diverging route indication, the route was set all the way through the junction. Worst case scenario, travel through the junction and find a red signal at the other side. And in simple terms, this is what Shaw had in his mind about the signals. Remember the layout of the lines at Colwich, left to right, was down fast, down slow, up fast, up slow. Shaw was travelling along the down fast and received a flashing double yellow aspect at Charlie Hotel 105. Diverging route ahead, slow down. Charlie 103, the second to last signal before the crossover, he received a single flashing yellow. Slow further, next signal is your diverging route. At Charlie Hotel 28, the signal that protects the actual crossover to the downslope, he came upon a single solid yellow with a route indication pointing to the right-hand side, showing a diverging route to the right. His train traversed the crossover to the right-hand direction. Shaw, fully under the impression that he had a route set through the junction and that the worst case was the first signal on the stoke line being set to danger. He was so sure of this that he was surprised to see Hotel 23 at danger when he came upon it. And he was even more surprised that it didn't step up on his approach. This is because Shaw had misunderstood one very important thing about the signalling setup as it was at Colwich. It had only been changed the month before the accident, in August 1986. Prior to the 17th of August 1986, a train approaching the junction along the down fast line and routed over the crossover to the down slow received a single yellow aspect at Charlie Hotel 103 and approached signal Charlie Hotel 28 at red. The signal remained red until a specific track circuit was detected as occupied, which released the signal to the appropriate proceed aspect together with the junction indicator. It is Really important to note here that Charlie Hotel 23, that very last signal before the diamond, had no approach release provided. It never did. It was never an approach control signal, before or after the alterations. There was a change made on the 17th to add diverging indications into the mix, and this was done to enable the crossover between the down fast and the down slow to be traversed at its designed speed of 50 miles an hour. This was done by introducing flashing yellow aspects at Charlie Hotel 105, the double yellow, and Charlie Hotel 103, the single yellow flashing. 
These were followed by Charlie Hotel 28 with a route indicator, which led a train from the down fast across the crossover to the down slow, leading up to Charlie Hotel 23. And the key here is that in this resignaling, Charlie Hotel 28, which was protecting the crossover, was fitted with approach release and would only show a single yellow aspect of the junction signal until the train closely closely approached, and then it would change to the aspect followed by allowed by the signaling ahead. So if Charlie Hotel 23 was showing a green, then at the point the train closely approached 28, the crossover itself, then Charlie Hotel 28 would step up to a green. If it was showing a double yellow, it would step up to a single yellow. Well, it would stay a single yellow. Essentially, when you approached Charlie Hotel 28 and it remained at a single yellow aspect with that junction indicator, what it's telling you is the next signal is at red. This is your junction. That's your diverging route. But I haven't changed my aspect. I'm showing you a single yellow lamp. Your next signal is at red. It's clear that Shaw did not understand that aspect of it. But it had been changed. Maybe he missed the memo. Well, we're quite strict on stuff like that on the railway. And these changes to the signalling, as they always were, were distributed to all of the drivers who worked that route through a series of operating notices. Two of them, in fact, in August, dealt specifically with the changes to the signal at Colwich Junction. Shaw received the notices. He signed to acknowledge that he had received them. There was one thing that it transpired when everything comes out in the wash that he didn't do. Study them by his own admission, which, especially considering that this day was the first time he had driven through the area since the changes, might have been a good idea. If he had, he probably would have understood the most important factor in all of this, that the flashing yellows and the route indication, that all dealt with one movement specifically that diverging route indication was specifically for the crossover from the down fast to the down slow not the junction across to the up lines the flashing yellows told him the route over the crossover was clear and set and the single yellow at charlie hotel 28 was telling him that the route up to charlie hotel was clear but charlie hotel 23 was at red it didn't step up to a double yellow. It didn't change. Charlie Hotel 23 was always going to be at danger. There were some differences in the way that some junctions were signalled with the flashing yellows, but here it was probably true. If Shaw had studied the documentation properly, he would have understood the arrangement, and the accident just wouldn't have happened.
There is one aspect of the accident which is really examined in the report to Colwich, and it relates to the distance that the train actually travelled following the emergency brake application. This was a heavy loco pulling a full rake of coaches, but still even Shaw expected the train to have stopped a bit quicker than it did. We all know that you cannot stop a train on a dime or choose your appropriate British currency, but when stopping 20 yards earlier could have made such a difference, you need to ask whether it could have been done. This aspect of the investigation focused on an observation by Morgan, the senior signalling technician who stood in the box at Colwich and watched the accident take place. Morgan said that he definitely heard two noises from the Mark III coaches on the Manchester train, as they went past the box, braking urgently. One of the noises appeared to be coming from the air suspension on the bogies, but the other, well, the other was a distinctive air noise, repetitive in nature, similar to the noise heard when, well, when a lorry's air brakes were being applied and released. The noise was, without a doubt, an activation of a system on the coaches, wheel slide prevention. Wheel slide prevention, or essentially, well, or WSP, sorry, is essentially um, an analogue to to ABS on a car or a vehicle. It's designed to stop the wheels of the train locking up during braking in low adhesion. Under braking, low adhesion manifests as wheel slip, and this is where the wheels of the train are rotating at a lower velocity than the forward speed of the train. In the most extreme examples of this, this is where the wheel stops rotating altogether while the train is still moving forward. This results in the stationary wheel sliding along the rail, funnily enough, called wheel slide. And in those cases, it can result in a wheel flat, which is the uh, the softest wheel steel being abraded by the harder rail steel. Really simply, that means that you end up with a a round train wheel with a flat spot, which can be, well, it can cause damage to the track. It can knacker the train up a little bit, but it can really, this, this, pointed flat impact on the track can cause issue and network rail don't like it no one likes it train companies don't like it if you ever used to get it a lot on some of the older demu fleets in autumn sort of leaf fall season and if you ever hear a train coming into a station and you can just hear sort of dunk 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 that is probably a small wheel flat now if they get really big um they will take them out of service. A small one might hang around for a little bit until the train ends up on depot again, but the the really bad ones will just be taken out of service instantly. Um, And the wheel needs to get onto a lathe that needs to be turned to make it round again. It's a lot of messing around, a lot of... It's expensive in the long term, especially when you've got lots and lots of trains getting lots and lots of small wheel flats that need lathing, and you can run out of space on your wheel lathes. So under normal circumstances, you absolutely need to prevent wheel slide, to prevent flats and track damage, and all that falafel for the second time this episode. WSP prevents lockups by regulating the pressure on the brakes. It eases up when it detects the wheel starting to slide and tightens up again when it stops again. And this might be fine in normal operation, but maybe not in an emergency where stopping a few feet shorter might actually be the difference between disaster and paperwork. A number of tests were carried out to understand whether or not WSP would have reduced the braking efficiency of the Manchester train in the conditions on the day. But one thing that was clear was the fact that WSP had activated. That proved that Shaw had applied the emergency brakes. The weather was dry. The wheel, the rails were relatively dry. There was no, no real reason why you needed it other than this really strong brake application. 
The outcome of all the testing that they did was that it was impossible to determine to what extent the operation of wheel slide prevention did reduce the efficiency of the braking, but that there is no doubt that it was reduced to a certain extent. A full emergency application of the brakes, well, that's likely to introduce wheel slide, even on dry rails, particularly if the adhesion is reduced by any contaminant and will activate the wheel slide prevention equipment where fitted. But the report says that there must have been a reduction in the efficiency. And even a slight percentage difference, well, that might have pulled that train up in advance of the diamond. It might have prevented the accident. It might have brought even a few metres further back down towards London. Could have made all the difference. So the final report conclusion, sorry, the final conclusion of the report addresses this reduction and suggests that there must be a better way. Full emergency brake applications of passenger trains are made extremely rarely and almost inevitably only when there is a true emergency. A very small distance may make all the difference as to whether an emergency develops into an accident or not, and thus with the full emergency application of the brakes, I believe all brakes should be fully applied, even if wheel slide does occur and wheel flats are made on the wheels. I recommend, therefore, that consideration should be given to the fitting of equipment to automatically eliminate the operation of wheel slide prevention equipment in the event of an emergency brake application being made. I can absolutely see why that recommendation was given, and it probably should have been worth some consideration, but unusually it's one of those recommendations that doesn't actually get followed through. I think the the margins that were seen in the testing, there wasn't enough scientific quantifiable data in there for them to pick up on it. That's my own personal take on it. Um, it's a difficult one to find an awful lot of writing about unless there's a scholarly article I just couldn't find which summed it up better why they didn't do that. There was one recommendation that was at least implemented off the back of the report into the accident at Colwich. A recommendation was made to BR about those flashing yellow indications at Charlie Hotel 105 and 103. The recommendation was that they should only ever be displayed to a driver of a train in the event that the route was set not only over the crossover, but also all of the way through the junction towards the stoke line. Removing the flashing yellows would mean that driver would simply be slowed down on normal restrictive aspects, removing any quotation marks confusing aspects, and bringing the speed of the trains right down as they approach the junction. If, and only if, Charlie Hotel 23 was showing a proceed aspect across the diamond crossing, the flashing aspects would show to allow a northbound train to cross to the downslow at 50 miles an hour. This recommendation was enacted, and the junction at Colwich became a bit safer for future generations. The last story, while I've got your time, your ear, that I want to tell you in respect to Coach Junction is that of Alf Taylor. Alf was a resident of the village of Colwich, a retired man, a 33-year-old veteran of the railway. He created a memorial garden to the memory of Eric Good at the lineside, as close as possible to the point that the city of Milton Keynes came to rest. 
forget-me-not roses and commemorative plaques mark the spot and the memory. Sadly, though, Alf Taylor passed away in 1997 and the garden fell into a state of disrepair. In 2006, however, on the 20th anniversary of the disaster, the garden was rededicated. Around eight railway enthusiasts from the Haywards Permanent Way spent three weeks restoring the garden to its former glory, planting more Remember Me Roses at the site. They spruced it up, and now, with the addition of another plaque and a bench, the garden serves as a memorial to two men, Eric Good, who lost his life tragically, and to Alf Taylor, who gave the gift of time and effort to make sure that Eric was not forgotten, and that those who loved him had somewhere to remember. Another innocuous spot on the railway, a blur from every passing train, marked to commemorate the significance and solemn story that is attached to it. Unknown and unnoticed to most who see it, but unforgettable to those who know the story. Thank you for joining us for the fifth episode of season two. I really hope you all had a fantastic festive season, Christmas, New Year, time with family, all of that. Once again, please like, share, review. This podcast has grown amazingly over the time I've been making it. And that is all down to you guys sharing it on Twitter, reviewing it, telling friends, telling people at work about it. So if you want to get into that social media Twitter interaction with us. Just search for Signals to Danger or Daniel Fox Rail on Twitter. If you do want to support the podcast, it's there. There's people sat watching me now on a live stream. Um, there's other people will be watching that recording back later on. It's a bit of fun. You can hear me swear a little bit sometimes and mess it up. Halfway through today's episode recording, the laptop I was using for my script just stopped working on me. All that magic. You can see that on the... Uh, the live streams. So if you want to get yourself over to signals to danger.com and look at the support page. And all that remains for me to say now is until next episode, travel safe. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.